You're listening to Interzone Pod, and on today's show, I'm talking to Kat Clay. Hello, Kat. Thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Gareth. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to actually start off by by sort of asking you, like, like in your in your email signature, you are you are writer photographer, and sort of where where did the how, how do those two things sort of relate to each other, and and was it photography first or writing first? Um, it's chicken or the egg situation, I'm sure. I mean, I've been kind of obsessed with technology since I was a little kid. My dad uh, was an IT manager and trained in IT when, you know, IT was punch cards. And so from a really early age, we had, uh, you know, Mac computers. I remember playing Scarab of Ra as a three-year-old and being terrified uh, by the video game that, you know, if you look it up now, it's it's pretty funny. Um, but for me, my dad has always been into photography. So we had a darkroom growing up. Um, and it's actually something that comes into my writing practice a lot that I never think that there is one way to tell a story. And it's really important to me that there's no kind of snobbishness around art forms. Like, you know, you're not just – you don't get stories just out of reading books. You don't get stories um, – I guess I'm not a storytelling purist. There are those people who are just always like, um, oh, you know, books are the purest form of storytelling. Um, audiobooks are, are terrible. You know, it's it's not pure. Um, but I'm the opposite of that. I think there's, there's a really common thread between photography and um, writing is that they're both telling stories in different mediums. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually one of the things, I'm really glad you asked this question because one of the things I'm working on and have been working on for several years is a short story collection where um, every story is a different aspect of photography. So the Black Box Killer, which is an interzone has an element of photography in it, um, just a small one. But the whole idea is that that collection will tell the story of photography from the 1860s to to the near future. Um, and so that, that's a great passion of mine. And that's my roundabout way of saying I love all art. <laughs> <laughs> well, starting with that kind of technology side, you... you um... You mentioned before the show. You mentioned that you were you were sort of playing around with uh, with Chat GPT, and and I also kind of like, like back in back in December, I was uh, I was kind of quizzing it and and doing all those kind of stereotypical things where you sort of you know, you ask it silly questions and see what it says. But but yeah, there is that there is there is something sort of fascinating about the way these technologies can be you know used to tell stories, right? Yeah, and playing with. GPT-3 has been really entertaining this week because, um, you know, I I do understand the complexities for artists and writers coming towards these new technologies, but I'm also really intrigued by what they can do for us and how they can serve us and how they can also make our life easier. So apart from using GPT-3 to write a letter to the council the other day, um, I actually was using it to generate story ideas and I wanted to see how it would deal with kind of complex uh, story ideas or kind of how it could actually generate kind of story prompts. Um, and then I was kind of, you know, amusing myself by trying to plan a career as a best-selling writer because, you know, that's a, that's a thing you do. And I was asking it to 
give me novel ideas in the vein of um you know this famous author so my the most entertaining one was certainly um you know write me a synopsis for a novel in the style of china medieval and um that just basically gave me a story about cultists running amok in East End London um, and a group of scientists and technologists trying to stop them while strange and weird things were happening in the city. And I'm like, look, you know, that's not far off. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's a starting point for something, for sure. Yeah, and I think, I think look, it's limited at the moment. I, th- I think when you get into those niceties and those kind of really specific instances where you want more detail, like I was, I was saying, hey, you know, give me some short story ideas for hard science fiction stories in the style of um, Isaac Asimov or Ted Chang and, and trying to see if it could pass the difference between those two styles of science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly did give me more relational varieties on the Ted Chang stories. Um, but I don't think it was ever going to give me anything so specific that wasn't based on existing material. And I think that's the thing to remember with AI. It's a iteration machine. It, it basically iterates what it's been programmed with and a lot of the time that's not going to be the whole text of a you know a novel um, because that would be copyright um, but it would be like say the marketing blurbs and so the things that I was getting back were very marketing blurby uh, for want of a better term. Yeah I was one of my students was using it for for something to do with uh, coding and sort of like research and and we were talking about how, well, first of all, it's often just bad. I mean, like, you know, stylistically <laughs> bad or factually bad, right? But also sort of what, what, I, what I found that when you kind of, when you, when you use it for what you mentioned before, that kind of idea generation, like with a, with a different student, a younger student who was just having trouble kind of brainstorming, essentially. Um, and yeah, it just kind of helped help this student to kind of you know come up with a few sort of jumping off points and 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 that in its you know that as a sort of the speed of that you mentioned kind of making people's lives easier and i think that as a yeah as a way of sort of starting things off or sort of filling gaps it kind of works really well but as a way but when it comes to finessing or when it comes to sort of doing something more you know hopefully human it doesn't yet do so well i hope yeah I've been reading some papers on this um, just, you know, out of general interest in the technology and, and kind of like there really is this sweet spot where AI can assist us and it, it needs to be developed further. It's still at the early days. But I think what's exciting to me about it is the way that it can actually assist a lot of people with, say, disabilities, um, people who have difficulty communicating, um, you know, uh, especially, you know, having taught English as a second language where English might not be your first language or vice versa. Like I, I've lived in countries where um, English is not the first language spoken and that's been challenging. Um, and being able to communicate effectively using AI is is a really exciting thing. I think it's definitely one of those, one of those things that I want, I'm keeping kind of like a, a close eye on because yeah, well, obviously, first I don't want them to murder me, but also, yeah, I, I want to see how I can how I can use it. I'm less worried about AI. Yeah, I was going to say I'm less worried about the AI coming after me than the people itself. So you know, I, I'm more concerned about the human race. <laughs> yeah, we we are we are way scarier than the computers most of the time. Um, to, uh, which is which is a, a 
kind of a kind of a link to your story in Interzone two two ninety four, which you can uh, you can get from Interzone dot press, and your story is the black box killer. And I wondered if you could sort of introduce sort of a little bit about it, and also tell people where you know where how it sort of developed, where it came from. Yeah, I really want to see the reactions to this story because it is very experimental and um, I wrote it after reading a lot of new wave science fiction from the 1960s. So I was actually writing an essay for what ended up being quite an award-winning um, non-fiction book, uh, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, uh, which is about the new wave science fiction writers. And I was invited by uh, one of the editors, Andrew Nettie, to write on the very famous editor, Judith Merrill. And one of the reasons I absolutely love doing these kind of deep dives into um, editors and authors' careers and work is because I find them deeply inspiring. Um, and Merrill was a very skilled science fiction writer as well as an editor, and she's probably more famous as an editor, but her writing was also exceptional. Um, but what I did take away and was one of the things I had to read for it was England Swings SF, which came out, um, uh, the year escapes me, but it would have been the 60s. Um, Judith Merrill edited this as a way to bring new wave science fiction to the US market. The US market, the blurbs on it are hilarious. They're basically like, we're not quite sure what this is, but if you don't like it, don't blame us. We've got other books on spaceships over there. Um, <laughs> it's not a direct quote, but that was the the kind of vibe I got. <laughs> I, I, I should steal that. that that's-, <laughs> that's kind of what I like about InDesign is that it, it's going, like I appreciate that because what, I've been lamenting a lot that that experimentation of the 1960s is essentially faded away in and became part of the mainstream. But um, after reading this book and, and reading a lot of the experimental stories from people like Josephine Saxon, um, J.G. Ballard, and just how bold they were in experimentation and how much of a willingness there was on Merrill's behalf to publish these stories mm -hmm. really challenged my perception of what I should be writing because I, I think that there is a kind of... Um, what I call the American MFA tradition that's really popular in science fiction magazines. Um, and it's this kind of, um, you know, a kind of clean American style that is very popular. Um, but it, I lament it in some ways because I think there's a lack of a willingness to publish experimental work these days. Um, uh, obviously not by Interzone. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the challenge to myself was to to push my work further and harder. And um, along with that, I was reading quite a bit of Philip K. Dick at the time because, you know, Philip K. Dick. Ah, okay. Because um, I was actually writing another experimental story which has a has an experimental narrative um, and it's about a photographer in the future. Um, mm. And I've been trying to get that published for a little while. Um but it's about her coming to terms with climate change um, as a landscape photographer in the future. And so that all kind of interwove into The Black Box Killer, which I ended up writing as part of Richard Thomas's um, advanced creative writing course. Um, and I just wanted to write something that everyone was going to either go, what just happened? Right. they would be really into it and and i like that i like being a bit divisive because i want people to have a strong reaction to my work yeah 
And and I think you, I mean, once people have, once more people have read the story, I think they'll, I think there'll be that reaction, but you're also the, the, the way you pull it together, it, it it's not sort of one of these experimental stories where by the end that sort of you're kind of like what and you sort of put it down and there, there is there, there is that kind of what element at, at lots of moments but there's also a real sort of closure and there's it, it, it's a I, I mean obviously I love it because I'm publishing it but it is a very <laughs> very good story thank you and I, I think that's important to me too is that I, I want to hit this kind of balance of um, you know entertaining the reader I think I feel like as a writer I, I have some duty to the reader to write something that's going to pull them in as well as challenge their expectations. And for me, that's a really sweet spot. I don't want to write something that's just navel-gazing and, you know, that's no fun for anybody. And you mentioned this this essay you'd written for for that collection. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I, I think it did get a lot of a lot of exposure but at the same time i think there are a lot of people who maybe don't understand quite what that book is i think it's worth kind of giving a shout out to that yeah so dangerous visions and new worlds um radical science fiction i think it's from 1954 to 1980 or something like that um but but it was a book conceived in a series of books on pulp um by my friend andrew netty and ian mcintyre and uh, everyone in, in the book was invited to write an essay on a specific person in the new wave science fiction movement, or there's a number of really good essays on more of the general movements, such as um, looking at the impact of the Vietnam War on um, science fiction in the period. Um, I think what's really important about that book is that I think it's one of the only places where kind of these collected um essays on um, such a wide variety of writers, um, especially a lot of the black writers from the period, uh, the queer writers and the feminist writers from that period have been kind of collected into one spot. And and that's why it's an important piece because, um, you know, you can, I, th I think I get a lot of encouragement from reading these stories about um, people who are bold in the stories that they were telling. And I mean, you know, there's some more famous people in there, um, like John Wyndham, um, and I believe there's one on Samuel Delaney, um, that kind of thing. But there's also people that you might not have heard of. And I, I really didn't know that much about Judith Merrill before I wrote this essay. And um, just reading about her life in Damon Knight's the Futurians book and the um, book she wrote with Emily Paul Weary, which won the Hugo Award, um, Better to Have Loved. And that's her her kind of, again, slightly experimental autobiography. It's, it's written in part by her, part collection of letters, part by her granddaughter. Um, but the fire with which she lived her life and the kind of fire which she fought for social issues, um, especially uh, on the leftist side of politics, and, and also the way that she stood by her convictions and, and moved to Canada um, because of the war, um, were really, really interesting to me. Um, and I think, I think it's just encouragement to writers out there. I mean, if you're listening, is to, to be bold with what you're trying to say about the world and um, mm. the vision for your work rather than kind of letting the market necessarily dictate what you write. Yeah. Bring fire. <laughs> I love that. Bring fire. <laughs> That's the short version. That's, a, I mean, 
it's it, it's really interesting that you you mentioned kind of how those different kind of how, how different voices got kind of almost clumped together, which is always what happens, right? These labels get they kind of you know everyone gets pulled in, and then sort of it does you know that that kind of book really helps to I think yeah kind of bring those stories out. Mm, absolutely, and, I, and as someone who follows and is just a big history nerd. Um, I'm really interested in knowing the history of science fiction, um, where it's come from, and especially from an international perspective as well. Um, you know, I, I know a reasonable about, about the history in the US, but looking at, um, you know, different epicenters of where it's developed, I'm, uh, one of the things, I mean, you if you're reading Interzone, you'll see some reviews I've done um, of some fiction uh, that are that are coming up or just come out. And for me, a big passion of that is, um, you know, Japanese literature and um, writing that's coming out of Asia as well and Australia because um, there are a lot of traditions that are outside of the US um, and a lot of science fiction, a lot of speculative fiction, weird fiction, um, that's just not from the States and is really interesting to me. So it's a big passion of mine. It, it, it sounds from what you said so far that your, that your kind of reading interests are very broad. And, and, and I, I kind of get that sense from looking at your Instagram <laughs> and looking at kind of just looking at your writing as well, um, which, which, which is how I read. I, I'm not sort of, I, I'm kind of like a, a magpie. Like if something is shiny, I will just pick it up and it doesn't really, I, I don't, I don't worry too much if it's you know like an airport thriller or something which is you know really well known I just want I just pick things up and and want to look and I think that's really there was something there's something useful about that but also something really kind of dangerous because it's really expensive but but yeah in terms in terms of reading how 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 are you as a reader Oh my gosh, I just I'm hearing the truth spoken. Um yeah, my my room that I'm in right now, I mean, is is full of books and especially the piles of books that I bought on my summer holiday. Um and I probably read about four or five books on the summer holiday and probably bought about 20. So the maths on that is not good. Um in my favour, I do buy a lot of secondhand op shop books. <laughs> um, but as a reader, I'm always interested in beautiful language and experimentation and things that kind of break away from tropes or cliches. I mean, I love an airport thriller. Like, I love thrillers. Uh, that's what I actually read a few on my summer break. But for me, I get excited about good language and originality. So, um, it's funny. It could be anything. I mean, I, I'm reading Year 11's The Stepford Wives for my book club and it arrived yesterday and I started reading the first page and I'm just sitting there going, he is such a master of precision. And, I, and a lot of the writers from that period, uh, I mean, I think Levin's a little later, but Ray Bradbury, I read Something Wicked This Way Comes late last year. And the precision of language is something that I really admire. And um I'd rather something that was short and precise than long and languid, um, unless, you know, you're really skilled. Um, but people who just know how to use words with this kind of uh, effortless poise, and you know it's not effortless, you know that they put so much effort into cutting and refining and getting rid of the dross, um, 
but but that's something I always really admire in, in books. But I mean, I'm reading uh, Alan Moore's Illuminations at the moment, and and there's stuff that's oh, I'm glad you mentioned oh, Moore. God, I, he's a really big influence on my writing, actually. Um, and in in the way that he is experimental, he what he does that I really like is that he taps into the mythic. Um, and I mean, I there's a reason I've never written uh, Jack the Ripper's story, um, despite the fact that I actually love Victorian era history and have written two books set in the Victorian era. I don't think I'll ever write a Jack the Ripper story because From Hell exists. Um, and the way that that taps into the mythology of England and London and the recurring nature of crime in the city over generations um, is something very influential on me and, and something that I think about a lot. Um, and it's probably time for me to revisit From Hell at some point um, uh, to the detriment of all the books on my two-read shelf. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, um, <clears throat> they'll have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> what else have I got on there? I could, I've got, um, Oh God, I could see them right now. And it's just, you know, I, I've, got, and I, I decided to buy all these really fat books as well. So I've got, you know, <laughs> Orphan Pamuk's Knights of Plague. I've got Stephen King's short story collection, Skeleton Crew. I've got a book on the sewers of Paris. Um, that well, you see, see the, the the magpie brain wants to know about the sewers of Paris book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. I don't know if it, anyone who's listening is a Thames and Hudson publishing fan, but I, I'm a really big fan of their picture books. Um, obviously, for adults, they make pretty books. Yeah, they make pretty books, and I, magpie me, buys them all. Um. With, uh, on, on Alan Moore, the 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 collection is is it is illuminations, right? Yeah, and I'm kind of I'd probably say a few short stories in. Um, I do love reading short story collections, um, but the first story just uh, so the first story in illuminations um, is kind of set in this lusciously described uh, weird fiction world, the city, and it's about sex workers in the city and a young woman who has essentially her brain severed um, in order that she can service the magicians and wizards of the city because they don't want someone who could spill their secrets and their magics to other people, uh, not necessarily for the reasons that you think because they um, – if if a spell was kind of recanted wrong to someone else, it could actually be quite disastrous. Um, so she speaks in this kind of fragmentary language. Um, meanwhile, there's another sex worker who manages to get out as an actress um, but has an extraordinarily complicated relationship with the people who still remain. Um, and And it's got this kind of... You know, it's tied together by this strange Schrodinger's cat lizard device um, and the the difficulty I have in describing this story is that what is so remarkable about it is that it's it's not like anything I've read before. Um, and that's what I admire most when I read something is the originality of the idea and, um, you know, and, and Moore has a way with words that, you know, no one else does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's you can just sit and lounge in that language for a while. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he, uh, uh, Kevin, Ke Ke Kevin O'Neill, 
sadly died last year and, and Alan Moore published, I think it was on Facebook, but it ended up on Twitter, this sort of poem, this sort of, you know, a kind of memorial. And it was just, just the, the language there. And then uh, actually prompted by your, one of your Instagram posts sort of reminded me about Jerusalem, which had been on one of my kind of back of brain lists. And, uh, you, you talked about how you can kind of, you're reading something completely new. And, and when I started to read Jerusalem, which I'm very, very slowly working through, there's there's something about just, that, yeah, that feeling of reading something which is just completely different. And also what you said earlier about that that seamless, that, that kind of effortless feeling to the prose. And he does that, you know, just remarkably, you know, this sort of being both completely original and seemingly just everything flowing and obviously uh, it's been edited or it's, it's gone through these sort of you know iterations but you read it and you kind of you cannot see you know you cannot see where things join together it's just sort of all just flowing out mm, and and i i am so envious of that kind of skill that kind of um i guess it's like you know surgery where the the stitches don't show or the the scar heals well um mm-hmm. It, it is a remarkable thing to see from a craft perspective, but as a reader, it's just a pleasure to read. And when I feel like a lot of us as readers are always searching for that one book and we go through so many books and, and they're fine or, you know, they're better than average, but then you come across one of these, uh, these gemstones and you're like, this is what reading should be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the rarefied air of the exceptional author. I mean, Margaret Atwood's one of them I admire very much. Um, you know, you just read a story by her and it's a pleasure. Um, Cormac McCarthy is another writer like that where you I, – I struggle a little bit more with McCarthy, but when he's on fire, I mean, and, and the way he ends his books, it's just, it's, it's just exceptional. Um, and, and even people like – um, you know, Rainosuke Kudagawa, the Japanese short story author, who in his very short life um, wrote better short stories than I will probably ever produce. Um, and and this is another thing that really impresses me when people write with kind of a level of nuance and they manage to pull it off. You know, there's that kind of double meaning that's often in Japanese short stories where uh, Kudagawa does this so magnificently well where Yes, you can read this short story at surface level, but there's a second undercurrent that's saying something about the world um, that's running underneath that. And and when that's done well, um, it's it's like it's kind of like solving a puzzle box. You just see all the pieces come out. And for me, I do like work that is constructed. I like to see that someone has put effort into the construction of the story, but I don't necessarily want to see the scaffold. Um, I, I want, I like things that dovetail. I like things that, you know, I love things that use the title on the last two pages and you're like, that's where that comes from. Um, (laughs) you know, whereas some people might not like that, you know, it's just, it's just the kind of thing I admire. I I like that puzzle box metaphor and, and, and that kind of hearing, particularly with short stories where you kind of, you, whether it's whether it's very conscious right then or whether it's afterwards but you hear that click and and it's like ah okay right sort of that's it's it's all fallen into place that's that's remarkable and short stories are challenging you've got a limited amount of space to do that in and that that's that's the challenge of the short story but also i think that 
coming back to that point on experimentation, short stories are the place for that because it's harder to sustain an experimental narrative over the space of a novel. But a short story is a good leg for that weirdness. Moving on from that, I I saw that you had a massive sheaf of paper in in a photo. I think it was, I think that was also Instagram. And and it was uh, your your novel which was kind of getting getting ready for edits or edits on paper which i I think is really cool Uh, but yeah can you talk a little bit about that or is it super top secret uh well it's actually i mean um i am actually looking at getting feedback from my beta readers right now so i'm taking a little break from the novel um it's it's a a 19th century necromancy novel which i'm pitching as good omens meets jonathan strange um uh, so offbeat British humour, the norm. Um, and it's uh, – I actually write a lot darker fiction. So if you read Black Box Killer, um, you know, it's it's a little grim. Um, you know, there's serial killers. Uh, there's a totalitarian kind of uh, post-apocalyptic state. Um, but this book was the book I wanted to write – for me as the kind of hug I needed in the pandemic. So this was kind of, you know, written as a book that I wanted to read to give me comfort. Um, And so there's romance and it's still very goth. I mean, it's like Wednesday Adams was a necromancer with a talking cat. Um, But, you know, I, I poured my kind of heart and soul into this book and um, I'll actually be going out to look for agents in, in hopefully March or April um, with this big chonker of 90,000 words, which will likely get another 10,000 words after feedback, I suspect. Um, but I really hope that people, um, when they do read it, that they just get that same sense of comfort and joy and whimsy and, uh, you know, a little bit of the, you know, grim skeletal nature of being an necromancer as well. <laughs> that well, that that I mean, you've you've pitched it really, really well. Um, you mentioned before, or uh, you you mentioned before about when we were preparing for this 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 pod about uh, Megan, and <laughs> I wondered if you could sort of yeah, sort of talk a bit about that because I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer. It's one of those one of those trailers where I kind of feared that. Have I have I been shown too much in the trailer, or you know, are, are these all the best bits? But yeah, do you, do you have anything? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I speaking of highbrow and lowbrow tastes. I mean, <laughs> I'll go from you know some sort of literary endeavor to going to see, um, as we say in Australia, Megan. <laughs> but oh, I realize me. it's okay, called so, okay. Megan everywhere else. Um, but I I was going to, I try to go to the films every week on a Friday night and I had the choice between Banshees of Inner Sharon and Megan and I was like, oh, really not in the mood for Banshees. I know I'm going to be like distraught by the end of it. So we saw this film and it's got this real kind of Robocop meets Chucky vibe to it. It's really funny. It could have been terrible, but it's it's actually quite brilliant. And it, it lands in the places you expect, but the script is entertaining. It's about obviously a capitalist toy manufacturer that's always trying to create the newest and bestest toys without thinking of the ethical implications of, of those things, uh, which is, of course, why they make a um, sentient doll uh, who 
obviously exceeds the bounds of her programming. Um, and look, they're pretty light on the programming details, but clearly this is what happens in movies. When you make a robot, um, they're not just going to stay and do what they're told. Um, and it, it, it does have similarities with the excellent Ex Machina, but it's a hell of a lot funnier. Um, and you're kind of rooting for her as well because she's just doing some of the things that we all kind of want to do. Um, she's just going ahead and saying them. Um, and she becomes uh, obviously best friends with this girl who's grieving um, and her her aunt who is the toy maker and, um, you know, she has some learning to do about personal relationships as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just the way it goes about it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, it's really sassy. There's some great music cues in it um not spoiling too much by saying you know having a doll-like android singing titanium as a lullaby is probably one of the highlights of the film (laughs) (laughs) um but I think if you're looking for a laugh and you kind of want to get away from the grimness of, of the usual Oscar season um Megan is certainly worth your time so, so Megan, which is uh, which is out now, and uh, sort of like you you mentioned how y- you had that choice in the cinema between, you know, do, do I see this which is going to kind of leave me traumatized, or do I see this which is you know basically going to be entertaining? And the same, I think, with with reading. Uh, w- what are you reading at the moment, kind of just to kind of decompress, just to kind of chill out to? What what kind of books are are your comfort reads? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, actually. I did just read a thriller called The Ice about a serial killer at the North Pole. Um, and, look, I was really sucked in by the marketing blurb. I'm like, how can you say no to serial killer at the North Pole? Um, sure. it, it did hit all the notes. I mean, and, and look, it's probably going to be a great Scandi noir TV show at some point. Um, the book I read recently, which was a bit of comfort reading, was Good Omens. I read that over Christmas. Um I think when I'm, you know, looking for something to kind of get out of my head, I certainly do turn to crime or I turn to romance. I read romance novels, um, you know. I haven't read one for a while because I've been doing a lot of reading for um, my own kind of studies of craft and reviewing. But, um, you know, I I call myself genre agnostic. Uh, I like most things that are genre fiction and I'll give anything a go as long as it's well written. Um, The other comfort read I adore is Red, White and Royal Blue. I think if I'm feeling particularly down, uh, I've read that book twice and I just sit there for an afternoon and read the whole thing in one hit and it is pure delight. Um, And I don't know if you know much about it, but it's the story of... uh, the first son of obviously the president of the United States falling in hate with uh, the Prince of England and oh. has everything I love about it. So, yeah, it's a great one. Um, thank you very much for, for talking to me talking to me today. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you can come back on and we can talk about some of the things we haven't discussed. Yeah, thanks so much, Gareth. I um, am really thrilled to have this story in the Interzone and um, I just encourage all of you lovely listeners to go and read it. Um, there's nothing better for a writer to hear someone's enjoyed their work. So 
or you if you didn't like it, engage with it as well. I, I kind of am really passionate about people having strong reactions. So yeah. I, I'm keen to hear what you think. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see what people say. And just also just a final shout out to Dave Zenekel uh, for the uh, yeah. amazing artwork in this story. It really captured the vibe of this. And if you haven't seen this story yet, I mean, it's a redaction story. It's beautifully designed. I cannot wait to see the print edition because I think it's actually something that I wrote with the intention of being put in print. Um, so mm. I'm, I'm thrilled that it's going in print. Thanks so much, Kat. Um, I hope you have a good rest of the day, and I'll uh, and and please uh, follow uh, Interzone Pod wherever you follow podcasts. Uh, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Google, and we have an RSS feed. If you do it the the, the way it should be done. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye bye.